this episode of Dig Me Out. Godzilla guitars. There are a lot of three, four time signatures on this record. This podcast is a challenge. I might have bet on the wrong horse, but then again, I'm a Bills fan, so... (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me again, my co-host, Jay Ziak. Jay, I am enjoying a St. Cloud Belgian White, which I picked up over the weekend at Whole Foods, the bastion of overpriced liberal purchasing. Uh, That would be Whole Foods. Oh, you got it at Whole Foods? Yeah, I got it at Whole Foods. Okay. I thought you got it at Trader Joe's. Oh, not Trader Joe's. The lesser. Because Trader Joe's is like, is slumming it. Right. No. Don't shop at Trader Joe's. Are you kidding me? Oh, that would be, that'd be embarrassing. That's where the the poor liberals shop. Yes. Go with your food stamps and your government aid. (laughs) Uh... Do you have any beverage with you this evening, or are you... Um... I do. I have a Kirkland, which is the Costco brand, Amber Ale, a handcrafted ale. Excellent. It's actually made by... Um... Is it made by... In the fine print, you can see. Uh, the New Yorker Brewing Company, Utica, New York. This is also a New York-based uh, brewer from Rochester, New York. Brewed by World Brews, and that is the beer brewing portion of our show. Yes, there are many people doing way better job podcasting about that than we yeah. ever did. So. Yeah, we won't even touch that. But what we will touch are the llama farmers. That sounds a little weird. Yeah, Especially considering this is a band of teenagers. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, we're gonna get into it, but yeah, that was a little and now I'm un- now I feel uncomfortable. Um I think I have decided that when we do the history part, I am going to create an actual jingle for when we get to the history and I'm gonna insert it. You're not gonna hear it, Jay, until you listen back to the podcast. But uh-huh. it's gonna be awesome. It's either gonna be like a public enemy, like multiple sample like history, history of the band type of thing. Or it'll be like a trumpet. History of the band. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm leaning one or the other. Bomb squad or... I think you should, should do one of those uh, things where it's like a 25-part vocal. It's like, like a Freddie Mercury? History of the band. And it's like, you know, 25 female vocals on top of each other. I like that. What I'm planning on doing is creating some sort of a jingle drop in at multiple parts of the show so that it becomes both annoying and um, upsetting to our listeners. I want to push them. Let's see how far I can push them. This podcast is a challenge. It is. That's what we've been told. So the Llama Farmers, let's get into this band. History of the band. They formed in Greenwich, or Greenwich, I'm guessing Greenwich, England. <laughs> okay. Greenwich? Greenwich. 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 I don't know. I'm all confused now. I've overthought this. Now I'm Just keep going. 
formed by guitarist William Briggs and drummer Brooke Rogers in 1997. Uh, they went through some lineup changes, and I should back up for a sec. They were in high school. Well, they're equivalent of high school in the UK. I know things are a little different there. They have different names for things, but equivalent of high school. They found Bernie Simpson to be their singer and his sister, Jenny Simpson, to play bass. All four were in their teens, and they opened for a little band called the Foo Fighters. They recorded their debut, or they recorded at Radio 1's Steve Lamack, which was a or is a, a pretty famous radio program there. Um, they recorded at his show and released a single, and, which was Paper Eyes. came out in spring of 98. Followed by another single, Always Echoes. Uh, came out in the summer. And then finally, in um, November of 99, is the release of Dead Letter Chorus, which is what we're... We are reviewing. It came out on Beggar's Banquet. They released one additional album, which we're not going to review, which was El Tapo. came out in, I believe, 2002. And then that's it for the band. So we don't have a whole lot of history on them. I didn't find a lot of information. There's no Wikipedia on this, Wikipedia page on this band. So I had to scour some random pages Fine. All music just has one little paragraph on this band, so so let's get let's get into this. Um, How do we come to this album? Well, we came to this album because it was suggested to us by a listener who I failed to write down his name. So at the, <laughs> I am going to go on to uh, our uh, list of uh, bands that we're reviewing. Because I keep a track just, of all the stuff. You could just insert his name when you do the, the post-production. It's like a bad drop, like... Burr, burr. <laughs> we got this CD from listener Bob. <laughs> no, I, I can pull it up here. Uh, just give me one sec. It, it's coming to me. I, I have it. Uh, well, actually, it was two people. Um, Norman Frazier, who has uh, exchanged some emails with us about uh, Idlewild and some other bands... He's, he's actually got it. We're going to review another one of his suggestions. Uh, Curb Dog, which another person also suggested. And Orson sent us an email also about the Llama Farmer. So we got two emails about the no Llama kidding. Farmers. So there's a lot of love for the Llama Farmers. Jay, the question is, do you have a lot of love for the <laughs> Oh, that was a really nauseating setup. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, this is kind of the reason why we do the show, right? I mean, mm-hmm. albums like this where <laughs> I think it's a pretty good sign if you get two recommendations um, from a from a, the small, the modest audience that this podcast has. If there's two people who chime in independently on a band, uh, it probably <clears throat> bodes well for that. Uh, this is a, a, the other good, the other reason why I think this album is is really kind of the sums up what this show is about is I would have never guessed in a million years that this band was in high school I had no idea they were British I was even um, under under the assumption that it might be even older than are you saying did you say this came out in 99 yeah this is this is almost this almost was disqualified one or two more months and this thing wasn't even eligible 
be reviewed. November of yeah. I was going to guess this was more of a mid-90s thing. A um, couple reasons why. I mean, one might be the production, but the other is just the bands that I'm hearing here. Um, two that come to mind right away on the first track are Super Chunk and Palm. Oh, yeah, definitely. coming up for me um sort of a, a little bit of a battle between the pop the sort of quirky pop um with the sort of energy and the um, melodic riffs and stuff that super chunk does combined with you know just the wall of guitar distortion that hum does and sort of the, the quiet vulnerable lyric or a vocal that you know that hum does and then they you know, kick in with the loud, the the, the quiet loud thing, um, and in the tone of the guitars. So for me, it, it's kind of a it's a back and forth between those bands, which it just really, in my head as I'm listening to this, makes me you know just want to put this album as part of that mid '90s kind of movement. Um, so it's kind of, I guess I guess now that I'm thinking about it, they were high school kids. They were probably into those two bands, so. Really, they were showing their influences, um, which will make it, more, I think, interesting to go back and listen to it now, now that I know that. Um, I think this is really good. I think the, uh, I think it's really cool and works really well when the, when the, you seen the, the two singers are brother and sister? Yeah. So when they sing together and, and play off, have their vocal, you know, trade and play off each other, that's when I think they're the best. So, mm-hmm. you know, tra- um, uh, was well, track ten? Set. I mean, almost all of them that have a good chorus. It's because the female vocal comes in and, and provides that harmony part or some right. sort of secondary um, texture or layer where it's sort of like, oh wow, there's the chorus. And when you analyze it, break it down, it's the chorus because that female vocal is in there. I mean, the, there's there's a bit of a hook and a bit of bit of a melody there, but the thing that kind of cues you in, if it's not you know kicking into the loud guitar, it's that addition of that vocal, um, which makes it really cool. Um, I cheated a little bit and listened to the second album. I don't know if that's cheating, but you cheated. I, I went on the Spotify today, and and they have both of their albums on there. And the second one from from uh, I listened to it I think twice today. 
and I did not hear the female vocal on it at all. That's interesting. It was a huge disappointment because to me, again, when this album works well, um, it's when they're both singing, or sometimes when she was when she sings. I mean, there's a, I think there's a couple songs on here at least. Well, I think I she takes the lead on um, track nine, PVC. great when she just sings you know yeah, so. she has a great voice mm-hmm. um, for being being for as young as she is and then uh on track 10 which i mentioned earlier always echoes which was the single that preceded the actual album um, and that's probably my favorite song on the album it's definitely if not the best i think jessica which also has the combined vocals going on is great like it's really just pop punk yeah absolutely Um, it's almost out of it's a little almost out of character for the rest of the album well i I think i i think i know why that is and i think there's like sort of competing influences going on here i think they're really drawing from like you mentioned like hum with those big crunchy guitars and the sound of the early to mid pumpkins i know we bring them up a lot but can't deny listening to the guitars on first track get the keys and go um track four zerillo they have these huge wall of guitar you know things going on the other also the clean parts yeah and the clean parts but the other thing that i heard and it's specifically on uh track six big wheels and Mm -hmm. track 11 forgot to breathe is blur there is a definite Hmm blur influence in in the way that he's delivering the vocals there's a lot of damon elborn elbarn yeah i could try to get away to make the people go away all of the beautiful colors painting
you listen to specifically the self-titled Blur album that came out in 97, there is a great deal of American indie influence on that record. You can hear it in a song like Song 2. I think that basically Llama Farmers are filtering a little bit from Blur, taking that British sensibility of you know, pop music with the really catchy choruses on some of these songs, like on Jessica mm-hmm. and Always Echoes and a couple of the other ones. But they're adding, they're going much farther than Blur did in terms of bringing in the big heavy guitar. Yeah. Um, the thing that I noticed, I don't know if you caught this, I think almost half this album, there are a lot of three, four time signatures on this record. Uh, really? Yeah. Track one, track six, track nine, and track 12 all utilize a 3-4 swing beat. Interesting. I got the swing thing. I was on a lot of those. Did you say track four? I didn't say track four, but that could six, be. Eight. It could be six, or six, eight. I, three, four, six, eight, same thing. We, have we ever just explained that? <laughs> what three, four, six, eight is? No. I'm just if anybody doesn't know, I don't want to get like turn this into a music theory podcast or anything like that. Most rock, unless you're doing um, something you know, avant-garde, most rock is 4-4. Four, four. It's four beats per measure. 3-4 means you're cutting off the last beat, and it sounds like a swing. be like 1-2-3, 1-2-3, 1-2-3. Or one two three four five six one two three four five six. It's where you get that swing, like you're swinging a bottle of, or a, a mug of ale back and forth in some sort of a situation. <laughs> some sort of situation. <laughs> uh, Whatever need, that might be. If you need a point of reference, I believe Billy Joel's, Billy Joel's Piano Man would be a good point of reference <laughs> before swing beat or six eight. I don't even know what the difference is really in three four or six eight, other than maybe the length <laughs> measure. Uh, well, it gives it. A, I mean, we illustrated it there. It gives it a slightly different. Uh, I mean, six eight is going to be more of, of a ballad feel. Three four, in, in terms of rock, I would say in general, a three four can be done in, a, in an up tempo kind of way, but a six eight tends to be more mid tempo or, or ballady. Gotcha. So usually I get tired of three four, but I didn't with this record. They do a good job with the dynamics, which. Oh yeah, makes you not pay attention necessarily to the fact that they're reusing the same tempo from song to song. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that at all. I mean, I I picked up on obviously the dynamics. I mean, they're they're classic, you know, turn uh, clean sound, click on the distortion pedal, heavy wall guitars, clean sound, you know. But they do it really well. You know, there's some bands that don't do it great, and. and it, it becomes a detriment, but they do it really well. Um, I didn't pick up on the three-four thing necessarily because I'm not sure why. I mean, there was something about I I recognized the chord progressions and the songs being pretty simple mm-hmm. as compo- as, and that was the big difference for me between them and say Hum, who their chords are not simple at all, and their even their time signatures aren't always simple. And so I was sort of thinking, well, you know, this is sort of a, 
they're like a less proggy or less complicated hum. Mm-hmm. They're more of a pop-oriented hum. Um, but I was thinking it was on four four. I, I didn't. I, I, there was a couple of things that you know I recognized as maybe being six eight or just had a swing feel to them, but I hadn't really correlated to a lot of the album having that, which makes sense. I mean, it's kind of what makes it work in a weird way. The only um, I don't want to say it's a ballad because there's not really a ballad on this album. The one song that sort of sticks out to me, and I usually don't like the slower songs, but I, I really like this one is track five when we were friends yeah it has a nice um piano part to it in the choruses and mm-hmm. it utilizes distorted drums yeah yeah that really, are really well cool yeah yeah uh, they did a really good job most of the production is pretty clean and simple on this record yep. uh, but they do mess around with really bringing up the distortion on that song the cool eyes, but I've got the magnifier. Seventeen seconds, pull up the floorboard. Cause you blow away like you want. Cause you blow. But the, the guitars, but the guitars are acoustic. But they're acoustic too. Yeah. There's a mix of acoustic guitars and I think distorted guitars at, at the chorus. But underneath it is this really cool, kind of a different take on distorting drums that all kind of works together. And they kind of do it some other parts of the album, but very rarely do they. You kind of get that texture mix that goes on in that song. That's one that I noted. That's uh, interesting that you did too just the production on that yeah that's one I would like to uh, play for Neil or I hope and we're going to play it in the podcast so we'll, we'll get to hear it but I'd like to hear what Neil has to say since Neil is involved in you know, producing records and music assistant music professor uh, you know we used to when we would record with him always bring him stuff to listen to and kind of see what he thought of him when we were um, you know geeking out on something so that's a I really like the way that they produce that and overall they do a really good job of sometimes and this is my only i love hum but sometimes my knock with hum is quiet parts are so quiet you can't even hear them <laughs> actually have to turn yeah. the speakers up yeah to actually hear the quiet part but they do a good job of um keeping the quiet parts quiet but not so quiet that you're straining to actually hear what's going on i think a lot of it has to do with the singer, um, who is uh, a Bernie Simpson, he's enunciating a lot more than than Matt Talbot from Hum. He's actually, yeah. you know, he's got a. I, I think it's safe to say he's got a better vocal or a better um, voice than Matt. Matt, I, I love Matt Talbot's voice, but it's pretty limited, and he's straining, yeah. straining pretty fast. Um, but he, for what they do, he's fine. But yeah. Um, 
Bernie sort of has a little bit of Britishness to him, but it's kind of, you know, like you said, you can't really pin this band down as being a British band necessarily. And if anything, if I had said this was an Australian band, you'd probably been like, oh yeah, this is totally Australian. Yeah, I would have, I would have believed Australian quicker than I uh, would have believed uh, English, and I would have guessed if you, if you just asked me straight up, either you know Boston or Midwest. If I just had to pull something out of out of a hat, you know, that's kind of where I'd be in terms of their sound uh, on the production. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the quiet parts are not as quiet. It's all sort of a little bit closer, so you're not the ups and downs aren't quite as extreme, which pays off for the for when it gets loud too, because you know the guitar tone that they're using can get, if not produced well, can get really irritating quick. I think even you know listening to a couple home albums or listening to a home album you know over and over again, you start to get you know, that guitar tone kind of starts to kill your ears. No, not me. Um, I love her guitar tone. Well, I mean, I love it, but it's it's a lot to take, and you get numb to it after a while, and, and, and these guys, they've walked the line there of where it's it's super distorted, I mean, over-the-top distorted, but, you know, it's produced in a way that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't wear in your ears too much, and um, they actually do some cool stuff with... Uh, on track 13, the last song on the album, where, you know, it kicks in, and, and they usually kick in with, um, they tend to start with the quiet part. Um, this is one of the songs where they kick right in pretty much to, to the distorted riff. But what's cool is the second guitar is actually clean. It's a clean electric that plays this picked out, um, you know, either delay or reverb melody over top. And it's a really nice blend of you get that heavy wall effect from the distorted guitar, but the clean guitar is is picking out the, you know, the actual melody of the notes that are going on there. So the two together kind of really work really well. It's, it's another technique that um, I have to listen again, um, just listening for that to see if they do it again on the album. But it's something that uh, you know you could you could do a whole album that way. So it's kind of a idea. I, I've got I've got to bring this up because it's relevant. Um, this came so this came out in November of '99. One month before this, Obiz came out. If you were what back, Muse, their first album, Showbiz. Oh. Uh, if you had gone back and, and listened to this when Showbiz came out, which one do you think would have been the band that took over the world as the biggest rock band of the 2000s? Would you have predicted that it would have been Muse? That basically Muse is the biggest rock band of the last Well, hmm. From listening to the album, Mute, that first Muse album kind of blends in with a lot of other bands that were doing that um, Radiohead, OK Computer, Ben's era stuff. 
mm-hmm. but listening to it deeper and then hearing like how their live shows were at that time from people I never saw them but I was I remember hearing accounts of people who saw them live and being just completely blown away um I would say it doesn't compl- it it doesn't shock me that they're a huge band now just because two reasons one they stayed together you know the first two albums shit the first three albums didn't in America didn't do anything really I mean we like them. I like them a lot. But it wasn't really until the last two when they just wrote some pretty blatant pop songs that they get successful. So one of the reasons why Muse is probably huge is just because it's only three guys. It's they're you know it's easy to keep the band together. They're super talented, and they just kind of endured, and they've continued to grow. So with this band, I don't know. I mean, what the, like I said, what they're doing on this album in 99 it, it may have seemed a little don't you think it would have seemed a little bit like past its time well I'm guessing that's why it didn't catch on in the United States and that's, usually this is the point where we say why didn't this band do anything because bands at that time were successful. getting bands at that time were starting to get really like um, crisp and produced and you know yeah. what I mean sort of the, the loose there was like this loose sound of the mid 90s and then things started to get tightened up again and as we got to like 2000s and this album still has a really loose kind of raw feel to it and i think if, if i would have heard it in 99 i would have loved it but i don't know that i would have said like this is going to be huge unless they kind of changed their sound and really got more there's some definitely some some strong pop elements in here um on a song like jessica i mean that's just a straight up like you said a pop punk song yeah Maybe on that kind of stuff, you could kind of see like, oh, maybe if they go in that direction and still keep the big guitars, you know, they could, and if they're, you know, his sister stayed in the band and kept singing, he could, but I don't know. I probably, honestly, I probably would have picked Muse just because it, it was so well polished and even okay. though I don't know. I know that there was any hits in that question, just based on, you know, two Would two you pick Lava Farmers? Pardon? Would you have picked Llama Farmers? You know, that's a good question because I remember liking that album, the Muse album, when it came out, but not necessarily loving the whole thing, thinking mm-hmm. that there was only like really four or five really strong songs on it. And since I was such a big Hum fan and would have definitely like gravitated towards this, I might have bet on the wrong horse. But then again, I'm a Bills fan, so that's not, <laughs> that's not something I'm not used to. You know, this is this would have been my Scott Norwood right here. So, that's okay. <laughs> so, I guess that's two enthusiastic uh, responses to <coughs> the Llama Farmers. Oh, that's supposed to be a wagging tongue. 
promote. What? A Rolling Stone wagging tongue. Yeah, I don't think the tongue thing's gonna work. It's kind of weird. No, I gotta come up with something else. <laughs> How about a star rating? How about we'll do a star rating? How would that work? What do you mean star rating? Three stars, we love it. Two stars, we think it's okay. One star, eh. I think you've got something here with a star rating. You should tell other people about it. Maybe you could license this idea of a star rating. Or we could Maybe go. somebody like like Netflix would want to use it. How about... Or, or iTunes. Okay, how about... Okay, how about this? How about an A through F rating? <laughs> but we'll skip E. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, I, okay. We got, we both like this record, and thanks for everybody who suggested this. This is a really good pick. Um, if you are into the bands that we mentioned, you're gonna like this. If you're not into the bands that we mentioned, you should give this a listen. We know something I just thought of is that so there were a lot of bands from the late '90s we're still you know indie bands now and, and still doing things putting on a record every couple years touring a little bit here and there most of those bands are American right mm-hmm. like Super Chunk um, if this band was American do you think that they maybe would have been able to you know kind of keep going they, they maybe not be a huge commercial band but at least have found enough of an indie following, you know, to stay on small labels and, you know, sort of emerge kind of label or something like that and still be around today kind of doing doing the indie thing and occasionally playing shows here and there. I could or do you think it's because they're, they're English and just there's not very many... I, I, I don't know of any sort of English indie bands that actually stayed together. No, that's a good point because it seems like a lot of those bands just break up and then they don't do anything. Whereas you have a band, you know, like like say Quicksand, where the guys will go on to other bands, mm-hmm. or uh, a band like Seaweed, where they'll sort of they'll stop playing and then they'll get back together and they'll they'll make a record, do some touring, then they'll break up again. Yeah, then right. Get back that's kind of what I was. Yeah. More along the lines of what I was thinking of, especially but since they the have band dragged is essentially it out, a well, they're a brother and a sister. It's like, how hard is it to, unless... Maybe they didn't like each other. It seems ridiculous. Yeah. That's all I can say is that, uh, you know, sometimes family not always people you want to be in a band with. Till that to the Van Halens. They're making more Van Halens now so they can get... Yeah, but the British tell that to the Gallagher's. They're trying to make a Van Halen who can sing, or a Robin, or the or the Robins of the Black Crows. Those guys yeah. are constantly breaking up and getting back together. Yeah, Hell but they yeah. get back together. That's the thing. Well, let's let's put out a, a word to the to the fans of Llama Farmers to start emailing Bernie and Jenny to put out some more music, other than the two albums, because it would definitely be. Uh, Something I think people would get into. So I just noticed a note that I wrote down here that I that I wanted to mention I forgot about. It's written bigger than anything else in my notes. Godzilla guitars. 
<laughs> that was the best thing I could come up with. <coughs> the best thing I could come up with to, to describe the hum guitar sound and some of the hum guitar like noises and different weird things they do is it sounds like uh, like when Godzilla like does his yell. <laughs> it's kind of like that, like this metallic, loud, roaring, half screech thing. This album has moments of that, which is kind of awesome. I agree. It is kind of awesome. And on that note, we're going to wrap it up on Godzilla Guitars. We've just coined a new phrase, trademarked, 2011 <laughs> Dig Me Out Podcast. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening, for tuning in. Be sure to stop by our webpage for all the interesting things going on at Dig Me Out. Uh, be sure to check out a video for the band and uh, comments and criticism and send us an email or Facebook or Twitter and all that social media stuff and uh, Jay and I will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.